Yeah. All right. Praise the Lord. Well, let me start with a story today um, that we're going to lead into the Word of God in a second about it. But um, I actually asked my boys this. Um, anybody under 21? And not my kids, because I already tested them. Yeah, you know, you, uh, that, that was, the question wasn't if you're under. Oh, can I tell you something about age today? i got to tell you something. This is awesome. You know one reason I love greeting time? I was talking to a, a couple that's kind of newer to the church, and somehow age came up. I don't even know how it did. And, and the, the one said, well, I think I'm the same age as you. And I said, no, I know I'm a lot older than you. So no, we're the same age. And I said, well, how old are you? He said, 36. I said, praise the Lord. You think I'm 36 years old. I said, I got that by 10 years. That's awesome. So, uh, so uh, anyways, age is important. Um, especially if we try to not look our age sometimes. But, but anyways, that was, that, was, that was worth getting out of bed to hear that this morning, that I, that I look younger than 36. And so, um, question for you, though. If you're under 21 years old, okay, does anybody under 21 years old know what a cobbler is? Raise your hand if you're under 21. What's a cobbler? Okay, you're right. A cobbler is a dessert. There's no doubt about it. A cobbler is a dessert. Anybody else under 21? Uh, did your dad tell you what's a cobbler? Close. I think they work with they work with leather. A cobbler's a guy or a gal who makes shoes. You know, believe it or not, there was a day when you did not go to Walmart to get your shoes that you went to a cobbler. Matter of fact, how many of you in your basement somewhere, I don't know how, how I see these at rummage sales, and my dad always had them. Those little shoe stands, the little cast iron shoe stand that they'd make shoes on, I don't know why people had them, but my dad always had that little shoe stand that evidently he got from a cobbler at one time, some guy who made shoes. So I got a story about a cobbler for you today. Um, I should, maybe I should do another t- quiz. Do you know who Ronald Reagan was? You ever hear Ronald Reagan? Please say yes. Please tell me my, our schools have taught you who Ronald Reagan is. Okay, Ronald Reagan. Do you know who Ronald Reagan was? Oh, my goodness. Okay, that's all right. It's not your fault. Pastor Paul is not in here. We're sending him back to school to teach. Who Ronald, Ronald Reagan. Do you know who Ronald Reagan was? Who was Ronald Reagan? He was a president. Thank you. He was a great president. And it wasn't like ancient history. You know, he was a president only, what, four terms ago? Five. Five terms ago? Something like that. In the 80s for eight years. I'm not, and believe me, I'm not making fun of you. I'm just saying, I'm showing how old I am, really. That Ronald Reagan, to me, is like still president. And uh, so, um, and I kind of wish he was still president. I should tell you the truth. Um, you know, I really do. Um, we could use another Ronald Reagan. But when Ronald Reagan was a very young boy, you got your shoes from the cobbler. We're coming back to the cobbler, okay, and not from the dessert. We got your shoes from the cobbler, the man who makes, who makes shoes. And his aunt, this is a real story, a true story. I read this about Ronald Reagan years ago, and it just it fits really well with what we're going to talk about. His aunt took him to the cobbler to have a pair of shoes made. And when he got there, um, the cobbler asked him, do you want round toes or square toes on your shoes? And Reagan was young, and he couldn't make up his mind, so the cobbler, you know, lived in a small town, and, and the cobbler said, well, don't worry about it right now. In a couple of days, let me know if you want round toes or square toes. And so um, 
Reagan's thinking about it. He, you know, he's just doing his life. And, and a couple days later, he runs into the cobbler in town, and the cobbler says to him, um, you know, listen, little Ronnie, do you want round toes or square toes on this pair of shoes that your aunt is making for you? And he couldn't decide. So the cobbler's like, you know, I'm not going to deal with a little kid. He was fine. I'll just, I'll take care of it for you. So a couple weeks later or whatever, the cobbler gets a hold of him and says, your shoes are done. Him and his aunt come down to, to get, pick up the shoes and pay for them. They get the shoes, and the cobbler hands them to them, and one shoe has a round toe, and one shoe has a square toe. And it's a real story. And the cobbler said to him, he said, I'm going to teach you a lesson about life. Never let other people make decisions for you. You need to learn how to make good decisions. And I think Reagan learned how to make some good decisions. And he credits the influence of that cobbler when he was a little boy on teaching him the importance about making good decisions. Well, you know what? Every one of us needs to learn how to make good decisions. And the story we're going to come to today in the scriptures as we're going through, if you're visiting, we're, we're going through the book of Genesis, kind of just character by character and thought by thought. Um, the section we're going to come to today in Genesis is a story about decisions, about the decisions that a man named Lot made. And we looked about Lot a couple weeks ago as we talked about, about his uncle Abraham. And we're going to look at the decisions that Lot made and the resulting consequences from the decisions. And, and what I'm hoping we're going to find is we're going to find some um, principles or we're going, to, we're, going to, we're going to discover from elsewhere in Scripture some principles on how we make good decisions. So grab your Bible, if you would. Turn to Genesis chapter 13. Did you bring your Bible with you today? I hope you did. You know what? Uh, this this is my most recent preaching Bible. I've told you the story of I had to go to the giant print Bible. Giant print. And I still, with these bifocals, can barely read it. I have to stand. You guys, you, you get a kick if you can figure out what I'm trying to do up here half the time. I'm up here trying to figure out how do I see the words on the page. Um, but you know what? I, I have another Bible I use all the time. And I've got a couple of them. And I went somewhere the other day with my regular Bible to a restaurant. And I got a cup of coffee and I was reading my Bible. And I saw something, noticed somebody looking at my Bible. And this is what I think they noticed. It's destroyed. The, lab, the cover is just gone. It's all ripped up. The sides are all wore out here from just you know, carrying it around and using it for so many years. And I thought, you know what? The greatest thing a guy, a guy or a gal can have in their life is a well-used Bible. Right? So you got time to get to Genesis 13 with me? Genesis chapter 13. First, we're going to read verses 5 through 13. The story about a guy named Lot. It says, now Lot um, went with Abram, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. And the land could not sustain them while dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to remain together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of of Lot's livestock. Now the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling there in the land. So Abram said to Lot, Please let there be no strife between you and me, nor between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brothers. Is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. If to the left, then I will go to the right, or if to the right, then I will go to the left. Lot lifted up his eyes and saw all the valley of the Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt as you go to Zor. Um, well, we'll do a little further. 
Abraham settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled in the cities of, of the valley and moved his tents as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked exceedingly and sinners against the Lord. Now think about this story for a minute. Here we have two guys that we looked at kind of in the last couple of weeks, Abram and Lot. This is Abram, Uncle Abram, before he's, God changed his name to Abraham. And so this is who we're talking about here, Abram, and Lot is his nephew. And they've been together for a long time. When they left Ur of Chaldees, and they came into looking for the promised land. When Abram left, he brought his nephew with him, Lot. And um, what we find in the story here is that during this time of, of living together, they both become very wealthy. And it says here, they both had many sheep and they both had many cattle. And in, in fact, the area in Canaan where they had come to and they were staying was no longer able to provide enough food and water for their animals. And there was, there was strife, there was arguments beginning to happen between Abram and Lot's herdmen. So Abram you know, and Lot get together and Abram says something like this. He says, you know, listen, bud. We're family, and this fighting's got to stop. And he says, you know what, the, the only way it's going to work is we can't keep dwelling together the way we are, and you need to, you need to go one way and I need to go another way. We need to put some distance between us so our, so our cattle and, you know, have some room to, to graze and our sheep have some room to graze. We need to choose some, some different places. And, and he says a lot. He says, listen, you choose anywhere you want to live and you go there. I'll give you first choice. Check out the land, scope it out, and figure out where you want to go. So what's Lot do? The first thing Lot does is he begins to look around and he begins to look at his options. And what it tells us in the story is that he looks at the Jordan River Valley and sees that it is fertile and well watered. And it's interesting, he says it's like the Nile River Valley in Egypt. And remember, they had just come back from Egypt. Remember, they were in the land of Canaan. And then there, there was a drought in the land, and they, and they headed out of the promised land. And they go down to Egypt, and they get in Egypt, they got in some trouble. Remember why? Because Abram told his wife Sarah to say, you're my sister not my, and not my wife, so they wouldn't kill him and take her. And, and instead, Pharaoh takes her anyways, and God intervenes and lets Pharaoh know that, hey, you got this man's wife, and, and Pharaoh sends him packing. He says, get out of here. And they head back to Canaan. They get in Canaan, and they're still prosperous. And, and now they're at a time and where they've got to figure, figure out where to go. And, and Lot looks at the Jordan River Valley, and he goes, man, that place reminds me of the Nile River Valley in Egypt. It's lush, and it's well watered. And he looks around the rest of Canaan, this promised land. Remember they came into the promised land? And what were the, what were the things they found when they got to the promised land? It was land flowing to milk and honey? No. It was a land of drought, right? And it was a land of enemies. That's what we looked at a couple of weeks ago, that God really brings you to an easy place. It wasn't an easy place. So, so Lot looks around, and he looks at Canaan land. He says, it's kind of dry and arid, kind of tough to, to raise my cattle and my sheep there. And so Lot made a choice. He chose to leave Canaan, he had to go outside of that land of Canaan, to the place that, which was a place God had called Abram. Remember, he has been along for the ride and receiving the blessing of the Lord as, vicariously through Abram. He chooses to leave the Can- Canaan land, and he settles nearby in the Jordan River Valley near the city of Sodom. And we, we know all about Sodom and Gomorrah. We talked about them a, while, a little while back too, about their um, just incredible sin. He chooses to settle near, uh, near Sodom. Now I want us to think about this decision that he made here because what we're talking about today is making good decisions. I'm hoping by the end we're going to say, I've got a pathway to help me understand how to, how to process and make good decisions. But notice something about the decision that he made. The first thing is this, is that his decision to go where he went in the Jordan River Valley was based solely on human reason. 
solely on human reason. He chose to settle in a wicked place, and he knew it was a wicked place. And another little aside here. Some people can look at this text, and I've heard it preached this way, and I think I've probably preached this way and preached it in error, that, oh, he made a mistake by going to pre- go live in a wicked place. God often calls you to a wicked place. God calls us to be lights in a wicked place. But I think we find out God wasn't calling him to this wicked place. Because if God calls you to a wicked place, he'll also give you the provision to survive in that wicked place. You know, um, And so he simply uses human reason and he chose to settle in this wicked place because it wasn't, wasn't based on God's direction. It was based on this. He thought that it would be economically successful there. Isn't that what he said? It's a good place for me to take my cattle. It's a good place for me to be a farmer. His business would flourish if he went to the Jordan River Valley. That's what he thought. It was based completely on his career. And I can, get, I can make, make money if I go there because my cattle will do great. Notice in the story what's missing. There's absolutely no mention of his seeking God in his decision. He just weighed his options and he made a decision. There's no mention of him building an altar. Now remember, if you look at this first 13 chapters of Genesis, and we've looked at the, the time that, that Abram's been inv- involved, he often, and even back to Noah, they often built altars and sought the face of the Lord. And it says often that Abram did this. Uncle Abram was his model. Uncle Abram, what he didn't know what to do, he built an altar. We come back in the land, he built an altar and he'd worship. Well, he's got a really important decision to make. And there's no mention that he ever built an altar. That he ever sought the Lord like Uncle Abram had always done. Now, I want you to think about that for a second with me. Isn't this the way that we've really been taught to make decisions? Didn't he really do it the way that, that our culture today says that we should make decisions? I'd say, yeah. What did he do? He, he looked at the facts. He does a cost-benefit analysis. If you understand business a little bit, that's what you do. What's the, the pros and the cons? What's it going to benefit me if I go there? What are the d- obstacles to going there? He does some kind of a cost-benefit analysis, and he makes his choice. And I think he said something like this in his heart. Well, God gave me a brain. I'm just going to use it. That's well-watered and lush. That's the place I want to go. Well, friends, I'm all for using our brains. Matter of fact, one of the biggest mistakes Christians make is checking their brain at the door. God gave us a brain. We do need to use it. However, there needs to be more to our decision-making than just using our brains um, because just making a logical decision leaves out the most important factor that you and I have as children of God, and that's what's the will of God in a matter. It leaves out that idea of what's God's will in the matter. The question of the story really is, where did God want Lot to go? And you know what the answer is? We have no idea. We don't know what God's will for Lot was in this matter. But we do know this. We know the outcome of his decision. You know, think about what was the outcome of Lot's decision to settle in Sodom. Some of you know the rest of the story of the life of Lot. We're not going to take time to read it, but you go later and read the next couple chapters in, in Genesis if you don't know the story. But, but in a nutshell, this is the result of his decision. Basically, his life was destroyed and he lost virtually everything that he ever had. We know that God comes down in judgment upon the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah where he was living in Sodom, judges them for their wickedness, and although Lot was spared, his life was spared, his wife dies as they fled. God said, don't look back. She stops and looks back. 
And it says he turns her into a pillar of salt. That's one of the things that kind of head scratcher. We can all we can really figure out from that is God was saying, "Listen, don't be so attached to the world. Keep going where I'm going." But she dies. His sons-in-law. He's got two daughters. They're engaged. His sons-in-law um, die in the divine judgment because when he went to them and said, "Listen, God's going to judge the city." Remember what they did to him? Did you remember? It says they laughed in his face. He says, "Get out of the city. God's going to judge it." And it says they laughed at him when he told them to go. And after fleeing to the mountains. Um, his two daughters get him drunk and have sexual relations with him and they both get pregnant and they both have children and it's interesting in the text the text on purpose says who their children are it very clearly spells out because there's a reason for it the two two children are Moab who becomes the father of the Moabites and Ben-Ami who becomes the father of the Ammonites and do those names ring a bell to you? Those names are people groups, clans that end up becoming arch enemies of the people of God, of Abraham's descendants. So his decision to go to Lot, um, to move to Sodom, and to continue to live there, and in fact becomes a leader in the city, it says he sits at the city gate, um, ended up costing him dearly. Not only costing him dearly, it ended up his descendants end up becoming rivals of God's plan. They become thorns in the side of Abraham and his descendants in fulfilling the plan of God. And it always stemmed from the fact that he made a decision. And it didn't turn out the way he expected. And a lot of times we make decisions and they don't turn out the way we expect. Now, here's the reality of life. Like Lot. We all face making decisions every single day. If I would have to tally up what are the, the main things people ever come and talk to me about as a pastor, they say, Pastor, I need to talk to you. There's a couple of them. One of the primary big two or three is somebody's facing, facing a major decision they don't know what to do. And they say, I need some assistance. Well, that's, that's wisdom, looking for assistance. See, we all face decisions every day. And the decisions that we make, those choices affect everything in our lives. And in fact, if you really want to think of life in terms of what it really is, life is simply um, the choices that we make. Think of your life. Your choices, your decisions about the marriage partner you have, the occupation that you're involved in, how about the number of children that you have, where you're going to live, like Lot had to choose, where am I going to live? You know what? What will I eat for lunch? Um, Tracy, didn't you and Evan make a bad decision on some Chinese a couple weeks ago? Yeah, they both got sick. Every decision we make has, has an impact. And so, you know, you can, the decision can be as much as eating some bad Chinese and, and, uh, and suffering the consequences. Well, here's the good news for us. As Christians, as children of God, we can make good choices. And here's the reason why. Because we are not alone in the decision-making process. And I want you to understand something today, church. God wants to lead us through life. God desires to help us make good decisions. I have a plaque in my, in my office sitting on my bookshelf that, you know how when you move, you, you keep things that are important to you? This plaque is important to me. The plaque reads this. It re, it's, it's from Proverbs 16.9. It says, A man's mind plans his ways, but the Lord directs his steps. Now that plaque was given to me by a man who learned about bad and good decisions in his life because earlier in his life, before I met him, 
Um, he had tried to end his life, and the way he tried to end his life is he drank lye. He thought if I drank lye, it would, it would kill him. Well, it almost did kill him, but it was a horrible, horrible effect. The lie ate through his face, it ate through his mouth, it ate through his jaw and his cheeks, it ate through his throat. And so if you looked at it, it was nothing but scars, um, just uh, kind of like bubbled up skin is the best way I can describe it, because he had drank lie. He could barely talk. And uh, when I met him later on in his life, he had um, chose to give his life to Christ, and now he was ministering to people with addictions because he was an addict before that. As a matter of fact, he ran a Celebrate Recovery group, um, and that's how I knew him through that. He was a member of another church. We became good friends. And he had learned that God was the factor in making good choices, that a man's mind plans his ways, but the Lord, if we'll let him, will direct our steps. See, as children of God, we need the leading of God in our decision-making. Because guess what, friends? He knows what's best for us. You think that's true? God knows what's best for us. Who, who here knows that we don't always know what's best for us? We don't. Anybody ever made a bad decision? I got two hands up, okay? I've made some bad decisions in my life. And so have you. You know, anybody ever had parachute pants? That was a bad decision. That was a bad decision. We make some bad decisions. Eric, did you ever have parachute pants? I bet you you did. I see he did. He's afraid so. You know what? Um, we need the leading of the Lord. He would have told me, Mark, you don't want to wear those. Someday there's going to be pictures of you and they're going to haunt you. Um, we need the leading of the Lord in the decision making. So how do we find that leading? Well, you know what? I... I I think there's a process that there's some steps we can take in doing our best to figure out what God decision, how, how he wants to lead and guide us in our decision making. And, and I want to kind of talk about three steps that I see that we can take to help us to make good decisions. Kind of a pathway to walk for making good decisions. So the three steps. The first step is this. We got a decision to make. First one is this. Value God's revealed truth above your reasoning. Value God's revealed truth above your reasoning. Grab your Bible and turn with me to the book of Proverbs. I think one of the most quoted verses by Christians, section, a couple verses, Proverbs chapter 3. This is about valuing God's revealed truth above your reasoning. Proverbs chapter 3. If you don't underline, look at friends, I got underlines, things in circles and squares and red ink and black ink. You know what? This is your book. You want to remember it, so underline it. Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6 says this, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all of your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make your paths straight. What's it mean for Him to make our paths straight? clear leading, to, to direct us where he wants us to go. That's what it's talking about here. Um, that he will give us straight paths. He will lead us in the directions of decision making that we need to make. Now the question is, in the text, how does that happen? It's interesting. It says something that's the opposite of what we normally think. It says, by not leaning on our own understanding about a situation, not, and I would say this, by not exclusively leading on our own understanding. Again, we don't check our brain at the door, but 
We don't just evaluate it in human sense by not leaning on our own understanding, but rather looking for and trusting in the Lord's direction. Think a lot with me for a second. Lot exclusively, from what we can tell from the text, exclusively looked to his own understanding. And when he looked to his own understanding about where to settle, you know what he did, in my opinion? He made a reasonable, sensible human decision. Right? A river valley is a good place for, for running a farm. Does that make sense? He made a good decision, didn't he? A reasonable, sensible human decision. River valleys are good places for farms. But friends, you know what? There is a lot more at your disposal as a Christian than simple human reasoning. God's given us more than just the ability to figure it out. And understand, many hard decisions have been made for you already by God. God has made decisions for you, so you don't have to ask, what should I do? And He's recorded them in His Word. That many hard decisions are already made for us. And God said, Mark, I know you're going to wrestle with this, so I'm going to put it in the book. So the first thing that you need to do when making a decision is ask, what does God's Word say about that situation? And often just asking that one question will give you the direction that you need to make a right decision, a decision that will lead you to blessing and not heartache, because Lot never knew the end of his decision would be heartache. God could have given him a direction that would have led to blessing if he would have looked to God's Word. Now let's think of this. Now you know what? And I don't want to... Let's not be too hard on Lot. You know what Lot didn't have? He didn't have the book. I was thinking about that. At first I wanted to say, well, what text could Lot have looked to? And I thought about something. Lot didn't have a text to look to. It wasn't even written that Moses hadn't come. There was no law. There was, you know, they were just trying to hear from God. But we got the book. And let's think about a real life example of how this works. You know, we live in a pretty tough economy right now. You're probably tired of watching the news and hearing about it. I am too. And it might be making, you might be facing some financial difficulty in your life. And here's a, here's a, a scenario. You're trying, to, you're trying to get ahead and get by, and you understand that he doesn't, who doesn't work shouldn't eat, and so I'm going to work hard. And, and God's given us life. We're supposed to work hard. Work's not a four-letter word. And you get a job, and you're working your job, but then you get a side job. Anybody ever work a side job? Second job? I have many, 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 many times to make some extra money on the side. You do your job, and then you do something. For me, it's usually been some kind of carpentry stuff. You know, build something for somebody. And you know what they normally do with that? How do they pay you? Pay you in cash. Cash is king, right? Then the question comes down. They can't pay you in cash. You ask yourself, do I really need to report that on my income taxes? Do I really need to let Uncle Sam know that I made that extra money? And you wrestle with it in your mind. You're trying to make a good decision. And you can, man, I guarantee you, I can convince you that you shouldn't do it. I can rationalize it. I can tell you it. But you know what? I ask myself this question. What's God's word say about the situation? Well, God's word tells us to always be honest, correct? And it tells us when Jesus was asked about paying taxes, his answer was very clear. Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and unto God what is God's. And what he said by that was, pay the taxes that you owe and pay your tithes. And you know what? I've never squabbled about paying my tithes. It's been an easy thing for me. Got saved. I was, you know, pretty young in life. 
and I just got saved. I was told it was right. I started tithing, and God blessed me because of it always has. But you know what? I have more confidence in God than in Uncle Sam. You? And um, it could be a very hard decision to make about reporting that on your, on your income taxes and then paying taxes on it. Because your reasoning could easily say to you, you know what, I need that money. I worked hard for that money. God blessed me with a job to earn the extra money, and Uncle Sam's just going to squander it anyways. You could think that. I won't ask for a show of hands, but how many of you have had that exact same thought? There's, you know, invisible hands going up all over the place. But you know what, friends? The decision has already been made for you. It doesn't even require prayer. The decision's already been made. We all need to obey God's revealed word. And what we need to do is know it and obey it and trust and obey that God is really in control and God really will do what's best for us in our lives. So that's the first step in making good decisions. You value God's revealed truth above your reasoning. And I'll tell you, that's a tough one because you can rationalize it away. Right? Step one. Step two is this. In making good decisions, honestly, and I, I, I have that word underlined in red in my notes, honestly seek God's will for your situation. Honestly seek God's will for your situation. It's easy at times to seek my will for the situation, but honestly try to be open and seek after God's will for a situation, knowing that God's will isn't often easy. You know, and I'm referring here to going beyond the basic teachings of revealed of God's revealed word. Now we've said we're going to look at that first, but I'm saying we've got to go to the Lord and ask Him for a specific word about our situation. We need the voice of the Spirit of God to speak into our heart about a situation. Now this may seem really obvious. Oh, you say, well, of course we do that, but this is what. I'm kind of convinced of over the years of living it myself and watching other people live for God is that we probably don't do this with great regularity I think we really generally make most of our decisions like Lot did we make them simply by common sense or human desire what do I want or what makes sense but in Lot's situation there's no record that he ever sought God's will we said on where he should live a church. We must seek God's will. And I'm going to tell you something, that requires time and effort. To seek God's will requires getting alone with God and asking and seeking and knocking. It's asking for His divine wisdom to be given to you so you can make a right choice. And you want to know one of the best places to do that is? On a silent prayer retreat. You know what? This coming week, Monday, I just got back from a week's vacation Fall is the busiest time of the year for me at church. And this coming week, Pastor Pete, I don't know how come the district schedules it. He's the one running it. Um, it's not his choice. We have the minister's silent prayer retreat for our district pastors. It starts Monday. Staff's got to come in early, do a staff meeting early Monday morning so that I can hit Wapaka for three days. Guess what? Everything inside of me doesn't want to go because of my schedule. Um, Pastor Paul, I talked to him this morning. He's like, you know how many things I have to do? And now i got to go and shut up and sit down for basically two whole days? You know? <laughs> I said, listen, buddy, if I can shut up for two days, anybody can shut up for two days. Um, 
But here's the deal. You say, why are you bringing it like that? I love going on silent retreat. I love it. It's my spiritual highlight of my year. But it's at the rotten, most rotten time every year in fall. It's the worst time. And I say, God, it's so important for me to ask and seek and knock that I'll rearrange my life. And I really do. I rearrange my life schedule this time of the year um, in order to work around getting alone with God and asking and seeking and knocking so that I can hear his voice for my life. Friends, the world's logic says something like this in making decisions. If you don't know what to do, don't just stand there, do something. You ever been told that? Well, don't just stand there, do something. I was raised being told that, you know, <clears throat> in the butt backside. Don't just stand there, do something, you know. Some of you were raised the same way. Anybody get the inside of the foot to the backside? I used to get that a lot. Um, you know, uh, do something. You know what? I've learned in life that just the opposite is true. If I don't know what to do, I stop. And I stop just doing something, and I stand there. And I begin to ask, and seek, and knock, and listen. And I do my best to wait until God gives me a direction before I make a decision. I've learned something, friends, and and I honestly believe this next statement is, is absolutely for somebody today. I sensed it when I put it in my notes. And I need you to hear this today. I've learned that if possible, if I don't know what to do, I choose to do nothing. And I say if possible. Sometimes, you know, a deadline comes, you've got to make a decision. It's a date. You know, the bank says this, the job says that. You've got to make a decision. You're really unsure. You do your best to make it. But if possible, if I don't know what to do, I do nothing. And I wait for the voice of God. And here's what I think somebody needs to hear today about that. You never make a decision, a large decision, in a time of stress or anger or frustration. That if you're feeling stressed or angry or hurt or frustrated or kind of out of sync with life, what I've learned is I don't hear God's voice very clearly during that time. Matter of fact, I often can confuse God's voice with my voice. And I sometimes get, I, I miss the mark. And I say, if possible, if you don't know what to do, do nothing. And especially if you're in a time of difficulty and stress. Don't ever make big decisions during a time of stress or anger or frustration or hurt. Does that make sense? I've found that this part of walking in right decision making is probably the most difficult part of making good decisions because I have to give up control and trust God that He is going to come through. And all the while I'm saying, but God, I've got to make a decision because no one's going to talk to you about the decision, God. They're going to come to me. Pastor, you said, you know, that God, they're not going to say, but God said. They're going to say, Pastor, you did. And I've got to make a decision. And I've learned, tried my best to sit back, ask, seek, knock, listen, and wait until God gives a direction. You want to know what one of those comforting verses in the whole Bible to me is? Psalm 23 says this. It says, He guides me in paths of righteousness for His namesake. He guides me in paths of righteousness for His namesake. I remember a time in my life when I had to make an incredibly difficult decision. I mean, life-changing decision. And I was one ball of stress. I mean, I was sick. 
I was upset. I couldn't sleep. I mean, I, I'm making a life-altering decision. And at that time, the Lord really led me just to camp out in Psalm 23. And one time I'm going through it, I'd memorize it, and I would just close my eyes and go through Psalm 23. And I came, I, I, I said this verse for the hundredth time probably, and all of a sudden, he guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. It didn't say it was about me. It says he's going to make help me make a good decision for his benefit, for his namesake. And you know what I've learned about God? If he does something for him, for his glory, it's going to be good. And he's going to help me. He's going to direct me in a way, it says, that he guides me in paths of righteousness so that he will be glorified for his namesake. I'm saying I can trust in that. You can trust in that. He'll give you the guidance that you need when you need it because it's a matter of his good name. So that's the second step. Let's look at the last one real quickly. One more step. We start off, we value God's revealed word above our reasoning. Number two, we seek God's will for our situation. And the third one is this, and I, I make it as number three on purpose because I don't want you to lean on this one. It's mostly we use this as number one. And it's this. It needs to be number three. It's, sub, it's subjective. It's subservient to number one and two. And it's this. We consult other godly people when making a decision. We consult other godly people. What most people do is when they get a decision, they immediately run to somebody else and say, what should I do? I'm saying that's a really smart thing to do, but it's after you've said, what's God's word say about it? And you've asked, seeked, and knocked, and sought God's will on the situation. And you've been listening and listening and listening. And you feel like you know what you should do. Then you consult other godly people. Proverbs says this, in the abundance of counselors, there is wisdom. And you see, when you are ready to make a big decision, I encourage you to seek the input of a few, not everybody on the street, a few other godly people who you know and you trust, who know you, know about you, know about your life, and who have a track record of making good choices. That you can look at their life and say, they have made good choices. They didn't choose to move to Sodom and then have everything fall apart. You know, I'm not saying that we all walk in paths and everything goes good, but it is a history of good decision-making in their life, and they have a history of godliness. And here's the key. Don't expect them to make your decisions for you, but allow them to speak into your life and to, and to gain from their wisdom and from their perspective. And ask this question. This is what I generally ask in that situation. I'll say it to them. Does this decision seem to line up with what you think would be God's heart on this situation? Because you know what? They don't often have God's word. Matter of fact, rarely will they have God's word on your situation. But they can say, it seems to me that according to the way I see God operate generally, that would tend to line up with the way God operates. And I think that makes sense that that decision could be right. Remember, in the decision, you want God's direction. Because here's what happens if, if you just go to somebody first and say, hey, yeah, what should I do? And they say, I think you should do this. Then the whole thing falls apart. You come back and say, why in the world did you tell me to do that? It didn't work. And you blame somebody. They're not there to take the blame. They're there to help give you guidance. You're looking for God for direction. You want God's direction, not other people. Because guess what? No one else knows what God knows. And no one else can have um, the godly wisdom of knowing the future like God does. But you know what? They can help you, godly people, primarily to see if they're making a mistake. That's where I think the counsel of godly people come in in decision making. 
we take something to them and we've, we've, we've looked into the word, we've sought the will of God about it, we've prayed, we've fasted, we've thought about it, we tend to have an idea, direction, an idea, and then we say something and they go, well, guess what, Mark? And they've said it to me. And that doesn't seem to be the will of God for your life. That doesn't seem to line up with what, I, what I've seen God doing in your life. Then I take notice. I don't usually look for them to be directive, where should I go, but more protective. I don't want to make a mistake. Does that make sense? You see the difference between the two? We look for them especially to guard us from making a mistake. And you know why a godly person has a, a real good perspective on doing that? Because they're not invested in your circumstance. They're not, they're not in the midst of your turmoil. And decision-making time is, is tumultuous time. It's emotionally difficult. They're not in the middle of it. They're standing outside of it, and they can think with more objectivity than you can in the midst of the, of the, of the chaos. And they can look at it and say, I, you know what, this doesn't seem to line up with what I think God would say about your situation. I think maybe you're just stressed. I think maybe you're, you're missing the mark here. And so we look to godly people to, to kind of confirm if they think it's, it's their direction of God. Does that make, sim- make sense? Pretty simple pathway to walk. We look to value God's revealed word above his reasoning. We seek God's will for the situation. And then we consult a few other godly people. I have found that as I do that, it helps me to feel more confident about the decisions that I make. And then I can rest in them and say, okay, God has directed me. Will you still have buyer's remorse after you make a decision at times? Yep. Some of us worse than others. Suzanne knows I'm the worst one on the planet for it. Make a decision and I'm like, oh. Was I right? Was I wrong? No. I think I made a mistake. And she's like, Mark, you know God told you to do this. Just be confident. You know? And so we all have buyer's remorse at times. But you know what? It helps us guide us to make good decisions. Would you stand with me this morning?